Good morning. So good to see you. As Brian mentioned, we had a great, great wedding yesterday. That's why the seats are all changed up. They did that so the bride could come down the middle of the aisle. It's awful nice to have chairs where you can move them and rearrange, but we had a great time. Yes. Are we going to move them back? You you know what? It is a wonderful thing to be confused in church. It it makes my sermon so much easier. No, we'll we'll eventually move them back. Anybody that wants to volunteer, we always take volunteers. Brian and I actually uh, carried all the chairs back in and set them up and measured them and had them all spaced out. So we've done that several times. We understand how fun it is. But it's so good to see you this morning. Take God's Word, if you would, and find Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be talking for a few weeks on something that's relevant and practical to everyone here because all of us are either parents or we came from parents. And did you realize this morning how influential your parents were and are on your life? And by the way, let me encourage you this morning to let you know that in every home, there are problems. And if you don't think there are problems, you haven't poked deep enough or asked any questions. And also, not only is there problems in every home, there's no such thing as a perfect home. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. Every parent fails. Every parent has falls and shortcomings. And by the way, when you criticize your mom and dad, we always remind our children, if they point out our shortfalls, we will readily admit them and remind them that they have their chance coming up soon. So be very cautious. But at the same time, We can learn from our parents and learn from their mistakes. And this is exactly why God records truths in Scripture for us, not only to understand who He is, but understand how to live our life better. Romans tells us that the things written beforehand were written for our learning and our instruction for those of us who the end of the ages come upon. So when we go back in the Old Testament, one of the worst things you can ever do is read the life of Abraham or read the life of Jacob and think that God is giving you commands from their life. He's not. Narrative does not reveal truth by giving you commands. You shall do this. Narrative tells a story, and then it's your responsibility as a reader to understand what that story is conveying. Is God? What's God saying about that? Where is God in this? And as we think about the life of Jacob we're going to understand that God was all over Jacob. I read something this past week, and by the way, the title of this short series is called "All." It's All in This Family. I mean, folks, listen to me. We're going to talk about lying, manipulation between parents. We're going to talk about favoritism of parents to children. We're going to talk about the hatred that favoritism causes between siblings in the home. We're going to talk about comparison. We're going to talk about lies to parents, lies to children. We're going to cover the whole gamut. So this morning, I'm going to flip over so many rocks that we're never going to be able to look under them. But hold on. You've got to give me... I'm not at the end of the series yet. When I was a kid, we used to go to the creek, and me and my brother would walk down, and we would look for our bait before we would fish. 
If you're ever a kid and you go down in the morning with a flashlight and you'd flip over a rock, 25 crawdads, well not 25, three or four maybe scoot out. They'd go under all kinds of rocks. You'd be flipping rocks looking. And if we didn't catch any fish, we'd eat the crawdads. We never did die. It's, uh, it was West Virginians lobster. Okay, anyway, <laughs> it's all in this family how God's sovereignty overcomes man's scheming. You know, scheming is a major part of your life. You, you may or may not know this about yourself. We are such deceptive people. We manipulate, we scheme, we twist, we plot, we turn, we try to line things up so that they turn out like we want. One of the evidences of you trusting God's sovereignty is allowing life to work its way out without you trying to scheme. You know, every time we try to scheme, it always comes back to bite us. It always comes back to bite us. In this very story, Jacob lies to his father, schemes along with his mother to trick his brother and his father out of giving him the blessing. Guess what happens to Jacob later on in his life? His own kids turn around and lie to him and do the same thing to Jacob that he did to his father. As J. Vernon McGee said, chickens come home to roost. And that's a fact. They do. So we're going to learn some lessons from that. Now, I I read an article this week. Today's message is called The Perils of Parenting. Do you know there are certain dangers in parenting that you and I have to be aware of? There was a secular psychology article that was written. And by the way, what do I mean when I say secular psychology? Okay, psychology is the study of human nature. Secular means it's the study of human nature absent of God. So you observe people and how they live and then you diagnose that. That is not necessarily an evil thing, okay? Because we do behave in a certain way. The weakness of secular psychology is it does not factor in the sovereignty of God or God's working in human life. And so we can learn from secular psychology, by the way, but it should not be dominant in our system. It should be included but not dominant. And by the way, have I bored you yet? Are y'all bored? Uh, My field is systematic theology. That was what I like. What is systematic theology? It's everything. So if you ever go and study theology and think it's just the nine or ten categories, bibliology, theology, proper Christology, you don't understand systematic theology. Systematic theology takes all of life and all of the world It takes those truth claims and compares them to Scripture and comes out with a worldview answer. So this is actually what we're doing here is we're looking at this text and saying, what is this passage saying about God? And what is it saying to us? Now, a sermon is different. What is a sermon? It is to inform the head and move the heart to challenge us to live our life in a way that honors God. So that's what I have to do this morning. And you say, well, hurry up and get on with it. All right, I am. Four types of parenting in secular psychology. Now, here's the article. The first type is authoritarian. This is the parent that doesn't do anything. He just bosses around. Yeah, do this and you're going to do that. Why do I do? Because I said so. Don't make me get up out of this chair or I'll come over there. I mean, we've all seen parents like that. Okay, there are all kinds of problems with that authoritarian type model. First of all, it makes children hate their parents. 
because the dad's not involved. He's just a boss, or it could be the mother. And it also causes them to have some serious issues inside of their own nature. I mean, it's just problematic. So they have low self-esteem, difficulty discerning right from wrong on their own because their parents always tell them what's right, always tell them what's wrong, and they could never think on their own. The second type is the authoritative. This, this style is by psychologists considered the best because this one allows children to have a little bit of their own freedom, and if they make wrong decisions, then they pay the price for it. However, at the same time, the parent is always there guiding and guarding the child, but allowing them to feel when the bee stings and daddy says, don't touch the yellow jacket. This type of style, they say, and I I believe this is probably true, it helps the child with self-assurance, it helps them handle responsibility, figure out how to overcome difficulties, and sometimes become confident in their own judgment. Then you have the permissive type of parenting, and this is a, just the kind that's almost completely passive, but not quite. They just let the child kind of run over them. The parent says, well, you know, we don't ever want to tell the child they're wrong because it might taint their character. It might do something wrong. So it's like the guy in England said when he came to America. He said he, he observed that everything in America was run by switches except for the family. So that is so true. There, there is no such thing as saying, you're not going to do that. You don't tell them no. And then finally, there is the neglectful or the uninvolved parent. This is just the person that winds the child up, lets them go, and the child runs the house. There's no boundaries, there's no rules, there's no anything. The child just goes wild. So we all begin to ask ourselves, what, what type of a parent are we? How do we, how do, we do life? What kind of a parent was our mother and father? And then how does that affect our life? Now, I wrote this, and I don't want to bore you, but I do want to read it because I wrote it yesterday after the wedding because this was on my mind. And this is basically the, just like the kickoff to our message. The foundation of society is the home. By the way, in God's word, when did the home start? It started in the, in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the Bible. Those of you reading through the Bible this year, God created the heavens and the earth. He spends one verse on all the stars, and then he spends chapter after chapter after chapter on man. Now that should tell you something. The Bible wasn't written as a, as a book to tell you about the stars or to tell you all about the earth and when it was formed and all about details of geology. There are truths in there. But it was written to explain that God made the earth and made it habitable for his image bearers to come to this earth and to reveal and reflect him. And so the very first way that God forms, the very first institution is the home. The home is the bedrock and the foundation of society. And God created man and woman as the God-intended means to populate the earth. One man and one woman would have children who would then have children who would populate the earth. So the home is basically the bedrock of society. And you all hear me carefully. Any attack against the home 
is a direct attack against God's original creation mandate. All the way back to the first part of Genesis. So anything that tries to dismantle the home is a direct assault. I don't care if that's fornication. I don't care what it is. That is an absolute assault against it. However, did you know that there's a growing and thriving home life is the most impactful foundation that anyone can ever have? You, mom and dad, are the most influential force in your child's life. And don't fool yourself to think that you're not. Your children look to you as a model and a mirror in their life, and they will get a lot of their cues in life based upon how you live and how you treat them and how you treat others. And that is a grave responsibility. I have actually stood with people who have stood over their parents' grave after counseling. They have written a letter to their parents and stood over their grave and read a letter to their dead father who was terrible to them. And as they stood there and read that letter, weeping, just releasing that emotion to what that parent did to them. Because I told them, if you, if you live your life with bound hatred because of hurt, it will destroy you. So you're going to have to let it go. Okay, that's a, I, I told you I was flipping all kinds of rocks. I'll get to every one of them. But the home was established as a place where sacrificial love, humility, grace, and truth are supposed to find their place in life. When this is modeled in the home, one generation learns from the next generation how to treat others and how to become stronger. However, as strange as it may seem, there is no perfect home, no perfect parents, and no perfect children. So shatter that image from your mind. As a matter of fact, life is so interesting because great parents of high moral stature can have children with reprobate minds, flawed character, and morals that are downright awful. I can tell you names of people who were the most stalwart, wonderful Christian people who had children who were hell-bound from birth. I can't explain it to you. Just meaner than a rattlesnake. Isn't that interesting? However, outstanding parents have reared murderers, thieves, and liars. Children can come from great parents, but that is no guarantee that they will turn out like their parents. So if you're a mother and father here this morning, and you've done your best, and your children are as wild as the grim reaper, release yourself this morning. Because their behavior and their responsibility is not a reflection of your parenting, it's a reflection of their character and their life. So you need to be freed from that. On the flip side, terrible parents who are passive can sometimes have the most truthful, trustworthy, and sincere children in the world. By the way, this was so interesting in my life. You go and get involved in the lives of parents that are so wicked and mean and drunkards and hateful and and their children are some of the best children you'd ever meet. Can you explain that to me? Okay, good, I can't either. It's certainly not always the case. However, it is true. Proverbs instructs parents to train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. This has sometimes been understood as a principle of child-rearing. More likely, it is instruction to parents 
to help their children understand how they're shaped and molded and encourage them to pursue that path in their life. Train up a child in the way he is bent. So it's a parent's responsibility to find out the likes and the dislikes of their child and help direct them in the right path. However, this verse also has a parenting principle in it. What is it? That we as parents are to do our best and then we are to trust God to take that and invest it into the life of our children and help them to learn from it and grow. So today we're going to begin a new series on the life of Jacob. Truthfully, the story is not all about Jacob. Actually, it's very little about Jacob. Rather, it's about the God of Jacob and how he intervenes in history and uses a passive father, Isaac, a manipulative and aggressive mother, Rebekah, both who show favoritism to their children, who are twins, yet completely are opposite in nature. One is hairy and mountainous. He's a hunter and outdoorsman. And the other, who was sophisticated, but had great desires for life and wanted the birthright of his older brother, but instead of waiting on God to do what he promised from the womb, Jacob and his mother Rachel manipulated their dad to get their way. But we're going to see how God intervened, and he does, at special times to take a trickster and a rascal and turn him in to a trophy of grace. So I want to invite you this morning to turn to Genesis chapter 25, and I'm going to read the text. Yes, I'm finally getting to the text, but remember, I had to introduce this. And we're going to go to this story about the generation of Isaac. Now, you can't really look at a son, though you look at their mom and dad, right? Do you agree with me? If you go back in Genesis, and how many of y'all started a Bible reading plan this year? Anybody in here? One? One person reads their Bible? No, I'm just kidding. About, about 30 of you. So here is the deal. What are y'all up to? Genesis 20? Are y'all following the three-chapter-a-day rule? Whatever it is, this is kind of how it worked. Genesis 1 through 11 is God telling the story of him trying to intervene in man's life, but after the garden and after sin, everything went downhill. So everybody throughout the history, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Lamech, Nimrod, all the way to the Tower of Babel, man is trying to seek blessing in his own way. If you read that, there are about six times through there that they are trying to make a name for themselves. Well, God's not going to have anything to do with it, so God calls a man way out of Ur, and he he was a moon worshiper. Do you know that Abraham's father, Nahor, was a moon worshiper? You can find that in Genesis chapter 24. He bowed down to the moon. God called Nahor and called Abram and told Abram, if you'll leave your father's land and come here, I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. In other words, Abraham, I'm going to do for you in grace what they have been trying to do in sin and I'm going to make it stick. So Abraham follows God, and as you know, God tells him, I'm going to make you as the stars of the heaven and the sand of the sea, but Abraham has a great problem. He's 100 years old, his wife's 90, and there's no children. Back in that day, that was disgraceful and shameful. And by the way, fertility was a great problem in the patriarchs, intentionally by God. By the way, another error here, I have to say this, 
When Christians read their Bible, they read about Abraham and Sarah and say, Oh, God has judged me because I'm fertile. Please stop that. Stop that. This is God's story unfolding of how he's going to get Jesus into this world. And he caused the patriarchs, Abraham and, and Sarah. He caused Isaac and Rebekah. He caused Jacob and Rachel. And he also caused Samson and John the Baptist's mom and dad not to be able to have children. God did that. You want to know why? Because he wanted the patriarchs to know that his plan would be fully dependent upon his intervention in their life. Now that's our God, folks. So Abraham is 100 years old. Isaac is born. Well, if you know the story, Abraham's already tried something different because Sarah, his wife, told him, what? I can't have children, so have them through my handmaid. So what did Abraham do? Sure, honey. Goes in and out comes Ishmael, known as the father and founder of Islam. By the way, if you ever go to a Muslim country, you'll see that they are followers of Ishmael and believe that Ishmael got God's promise through Abraham. And if you go to the Jewish nation, they think that it came through Abraham and Ishmael was disregarded. Well, if you read God's word, God bypassed the older and he blessed the younger. So now we have Isaac taking the promise of Ishmael, and that's not how things normally worked. But once again, that's God. So all of this mess, Isaac comes along he goes and marries Rebekah after the story is sent in Genesis 24. God directs Rebekah to be made and mar married to Isaac. And they go to have children. And now God's going to tell the story and we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 25. These are the generations of Isaac. The word generations, toledote. You say, well, boy, that's impressive. There are ten toledotes in Genesis. If you ever study the book of Genesis, some people divide it this way. It talks about the gene genealogy. Toledot means genealogy of this one, this one, and this one. So there's ten in the book of Genesis. So now we're getting to Isaac, Abram's son. Abram fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean the, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban. You should circle that. I have a whole sermon on Laban. It's called When You're Caught Between a Rock and a Hardhead. Coming up soon. But Laban is a major figure in Genesis. God's going to use this man to change Jacob's life. By the way, you ever wonder why God allowed hard people in your life? I want to tell you something. He's more concerned about how we respond to the hard person than he is getting rid of them. Mm, that's another sermon. Okay. Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now look at that little word up there. The children struggled together. The word in Hebrew literally means to crush skulls. I mean, she had not been to the OBGYN because, you know, they didn't have 
all the wonderful things we have today, but she knew something was going on down there. What in the world is going on? So she had to go inquire and pray because there was this rampant fighting in her stomach. What is going on? So she inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, now listen carefully, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Now stop. Rebecca, your children are going to fight from the womb. You're going to have a divided house. And it's going to not be very pretty. Now, can you imagine this, Mom? Your children are not going to get along with each other. And you say, well, what's the surprise with that, right? I mean, they fight like cats and dogs. Did any of y'all have a brother or a sister? And nobody can make you as mad as your brother or sister. Nobody, not even your wife. Well, okay, maybe she can, but, or your husband. But anyway, sibling rivalry can be a heated thing. Notice carefully here what God tells her. Your home will be divided from the womb. The older, I'm sorry, the one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Now, by the way, I told you in ancient Near Eastern history, this was unbelievable. Because the way this worked was the oldest child got the major portion of the inheritance because they were entrusted with taking care of mom and dad. So if there was an inheritance, they would get two-thirds and the younger sibling would get the other third. But the two-thirds were intended to take care of the parents because there was no nursing home. And not only would they get the major part of the inheritance, they would also get the blessing from the father which kind of put them in a prominent position in their culture. So God is not only saying that there's going to be division in his home, he's also saying that there's going to be a reversal of the order here. The younger is going to be on top of the older. Predicted, prophesied, spoken by God. God's going to make this happen. And Rachel knew this. Y'all need to keep this in mind. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. He came out Edom. Y'all hear me? Edom? He came out Edom and his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Harry. Esau was named Harry. By the way, have y'all ever seen a hairy baby? I mean, why is it that some babies come out so hairy? I mean, just a head full of hair, hair all matted up, and then there's those of us, you know, well, we'll skip that. Okay, anyway. He came out red, Edom, like a hairy cloak, Esau. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Heel Grabber. I'm serious. Trickster, supplanter. People would often name their children in this time by their characteristics. So you have Harry and Heel Grabber. Esau and Yaakov. And here are these two boys who are coming out of the womb fighting. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them, and when the boys grew up, now catch that phrase carefully, we have skipped from the birth canal, 
Now to what? All the way in their grown years. See, if you don't watch, you read over that and you miss this. The reason Moses is telling this is he's giving you a story to explain to you the character of Jacob, Esau, Isaac, and Rebekah. Are you all paying attention? Because it goes fast. When the boys grew up, fast forwarding from the womb, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob, the ESV translates this, a quiet man. I don't like that. I don't like it. You know why? Because it's the word Tom, T-A-M in English. It's the word used of Job. Job was a righteous man. It's used again throughout the book of Genesis a couple of different times. And it's translated in different ways, but I'm not sure it means quiet. It's almost like Esau was this guy who was an outdoorsman and a hairy, rough type guy. Jacob was more of a sophisticated man. So Jacob grew up, or Esau grew up as a hunter, a hairy man. Jacob grew up as the man who was more sophisticated. Apparently he was more concerned with different things. They were total opposites. Jacob was a quiet man, or a righteous man, or a complete man. Let me translate it that way. Dwelling in tents. So, he was around home. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, let's park for a moment. I will come back to that one, but I have to say something about it you would have thought the role would have been reversed here. Because if you study the life of Isaac, he is what is called a minor figure in narrative. I mean, Moses almost skips Isaac. He gets like one chapter, chapter 26. And chapter 26, I may do a video lecture on this this week. It gets a little bit technical. But if you study Genesis 26, it basically compares Isaac's life to his father Abraham and shows you that exactly what Abraham did, Isaac did. He lied about his wife and said she was his sister. He started to... Do, I mean, the, the complete mirror. He's just like his dad. But now you have Jacob who's a little bit different and he's coming out of the mold. But what's so striking is that Isaac, the passive father, would love Esau, the hunter man. It's almost like Isaac wished he would have been like Esau... And he's trying to live his life through him. I mean, have you all ever seen this? Have you ever had your children in Little League sports? I mean, you know, the problem is not the misbehavior of the children. The problem is the parents who can't sit on the bench and be quiet and let the coach coach because they want their child. They're trying to live their life in their child. It's like you have a 45-year-old 6th grader and you want to go, sit down. Stop screaming. This is a ball game. I know you want to win. We want to win. But goodness gracious, alive. Put things in perspective. But nevertheless, it's almost what this is a picture of. Isaac is wanting to live his life through Esau. Boy, I wish that's what I would have done. So son, go get him. But Rebecca loved Jacob. You should, you should underline that in your Bible. Very important. It's going to come back. Now here's a story. Once, notice, <clears throat> y'all catching this? 
Here's another story after they'd grown up to show you the difference in their character. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm about to die. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Give me some of that red stew because I'm about to die. So the people of Edom came from, go ahead and say it, Esau. Who is the last Edomite that we ever hear of? By the way, here's an interesting thing. In the book of Esther, Haman, you know, Haman who was the one that was wanting to put Malachi on the sharpened fence post and hang him. That's, what, that's how they hung him back in that day, sharpened post and... He was an Edomite. The last Edomite was Herod, the one who tried to put baby Jesus to death. He came from the line of Esau. So Esau produced the Edomites, and Esau here is saying, I'm dying, give me a bowl of soup, I'm about to die. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. I want it right now. See what he's doing? Jacob was not necessarily the kind of brother you wanted, and Esau necessarily wasn't either. So he's catching him when he's bent over a barrel, and Esau is flippant and could really care less about his responsibility to take care of his parents. Because it was all about him. He was living his... You leave me, that's my life. I'm going to live the way I want. And we're going to see that because Esau went out and married two Canaanite wild women and drove his mother crazy. We'll see that in a moment. Okay. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Now notice God doesn't come in at this point and say, now here's a, here's a lesson you need to learn. Taking care of your parents is important. You should value things more than yourself. What? God doesn't say that. God is allowing this to unfold. Here is Esau. Who cares about the responsibility of the birthright and the blessing. I'm hungry, and the only thing that matters is I get fed because it's 12.10 and the preacher preached too long, and I'm ready to eat. Now, I don't care if the world falls apart. Now, this is his attitude. Now, do y'all have children like that? It's about them. Leaving their clothes laying in the floor leaving a mess for mom and dad, no responsibility to clean up or pick up, leave their dishes all over the floor, food everywhere, use your car and run it out of gas and don't put a dime. I'm getting a little facetious here, but you understand what I'm saying? No care for spiritual things whatsoever. You know, when we start seeing characteristics in our children like that as parents, our antennas go, ooh, boy. What am I going to do here? How do I handle that? Sometimes you don't when they're older. If you want your child to hate you, try treating them like they're six when they're 30. They'll hate you. But you've done your job in their younger life and you've reiterated it over and over, but but now you have an Esau. What do you do? We'll talk about that later. All right, here, get on with it. All right, I am. So he swore to him and sold him his birthright sold it to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. That's the only insertion that Moses gives. 
he despised. In other words, he didn't care about it. It's gone. Now here's these two boys from the womb. God said will be at war against each other. And one loves his birthright, wants it, and the other didn't. Now I put four lessons up there on the screen, and you can see them, and I just blew the whole sermon, didn't I? Because I gave all four of them to you. That's okay, I don't care. My animation wasn't working this morning. But here they are. And here are the lessons. Number one, parents' influence is a pivotal, a pivotal truth in a child's life. You can't get away from that. Number two, God can overcome the sins and the failures of parents, and he can redirect a child's life. Number three, we have to learn to trust the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of his delays in life. And fourth, God's presence is greater than our weakness and our fears. Now, since I gave you the sermon, it's not time to go home and eat chicken, but it's time to flesh this out. A parent's influence is pivotal in a child's life. I have already told you that Isaac was born to parents of old age who struggled with fertility. Abraham and Sarah struggled. Isaac and Rebekah struggled. Jacob and Rachel struggled. And the struggle was not punishment, but rather it was God's instruction so that the patriarchs would know they were totally dependent upon God for the nation's existence and preservation. Jacob was not the firstborn, but he was promised by God to be the heir of the Abrahamic covenant and promise. Isaac was fearful. He was passive. He grew up with Ishmael, an older brother, much older than him, who made fun of him one time in Genesis 21, verses 9 through 12, at his birthday party. Laughed at him. You little... This is what he said. You can read this. You want me to read it to you? Here, go back there. You want to see a mommy get in a rage? By the way, if you ever want to see a mother get in a rage, let somebody pick on her child. I mean... Claws come out, teeth and fangs come out on a mom. I mean, it's just instinctive. Notice what happened. I'm in Genesis 21, verse 8. The child grew, this is Isaac, he was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had born to Abraham, laughing. That was Ishmael. So she said to Abram, Cast out that slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, she hurt Abraham's feeling, by the way. Verse 11, the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Notice verse 12, but God said to Abram, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. Obey your wife. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, but he, because he is your offspring. A rivalry started between Isaac and Ishmael that goes on today. If you don't believe me, turn on the news and watch the nation of Israel and all the Islamic nations around it. Now, by the way, just another side note here. Notice how God uses the counsel of a man's wife to direct him in the right way. In the Garden of Eden, that wasn't a very wise thing for Adam to listen to Eve. But here with Abram, it was a very good thing for him to listen to his wife. But nevertheless, she cast him out. Abram cast Ishmael and and Hagar out. And what was the result of that? 
Well, he was on his own. <clears throat> so Rebecca, she on the opposite side. Now we see Isaac <clears throat> bullied as a young child. Now what about Jacob's mom, Rebecca? <clears throat> That's a whole other story. But if you go back and study her life, <clears throat> she was raised in a home of an older brother who was a lover of money. As a matter of fact, when the servant came to find Rebecca, and he pulled, Eleazar pulled out a gold ring, Jacob, he didn't care about his sister. He went, whoo, look at that. Look at that wallet full of money. Yeah, blessed are you. Come, brother, come. She's, she's for sale. I mean, she's eligible to be married. This is what happened. Go read the story. He gives a gift, and he says, oh, yes. We'll come back to that one. But she had to learn early to be tough or die because she had Laban for a brother. You ever had Laban for a brother? And Laban's the kind that would just do you in to get his own way. Nevertheless, there's Rebecca. Perhaps that's why she was so strong. Who knows? But she became a very manipulative and strong person. Flip over to chapter 27. Just giving you some highlights here. <clears throat> chapter 27, verse 5. Notice what happens when Isaac is old. Rebecca <clears throat> was listening. <clears throat> Excuse me. Pollen on these pine trees up here. <clears throat> now Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. He was, he was getting ready to bless him and give him... This is the will, by the way. We're in the lawyer's office. I'm reading the will. My son, I hereby bequeath to thee 99% of my inheritance. Nathan, you are a fine gentleman. <clears throat> you took my coffee away, though. <clears throat> I'm... I want you to mix them up. Drink someone else's coffee. Thank you. He's a good man. We're blessed to have him. <clears throat> So Esau was getting ready to bestow the birthright and the blessing on Esau. And Rebekah heard and Jacob wasn't included. Now notice what it says. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. You see that? You should circle that. You should go down in verse 13. Obey my voice. Okay, I'm back up in verse 8. Now, obey my voice as I command you, go to the flock and basically deceive your father. Now, notice verse 13. Or <clears throat> verse 11. Jacob said to his mother after she said, deceive your father, he said, behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man. I'm a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, not a blessing. His mother said to him, let your curse be on me. You, you deceive him and if he curses you, I'll just let it be on me. I'll take care of him. You ever seen a wife like this? I'll take care of him. By the way, men, <clears throat> can, I, can I help you all a little bit? 20, 20 plus years in, in ministry. We're not as smart as we think we are. You may think you're smarter than your wife. I've got news for you. Don't fool yourself. 
Their mind is wired in such a way that they know the end from the beginning. I'm not saying they're always right. They know the end from the beginning and how all these things connect throughout. And we only usually just see one little portion of it. They, they see it all. And by the way, women, women are some of the best character readers of people ever. If your wife ever tells you something about somebody, you better listen to her. Because more than likely, she sees something that you don't. And she knows something you don't. So don't be the kind of man that thinks that you know it all. Because she'll just clam up and she won't say anything and she'll let you just dig your own hole. But if you'll listen to her and not know it all, she'll help you. Okay, that's free for the day. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. Okay, I'll come back to that. This is Rebecca. But you know, even though parents fail, thank God, He can overcome that. He can overcome it. You know, Jacob's dad, Isaac, was kind of a cowardly type guy. If you read chapter 26 where he's fighting over a well, every time he goes to a well and digs a well, it's a big deal. Somebody would come by and go, get out of the way, punk. And Isaac would go, oh yes sir, move over here. And he'd dig another well and dig another well and dig another... Now God used all that. But God had to appear to Isaac and say, Stop being a chicken. Stop fearing man. Fear me. I will defend you. I'll be your shield like I was Abraham. Stop that. And by the way, if you've ever seen God fight, God doesn't need... uh, Sorry, Doug. God doesn't need karate. If God wants to take your enemy out, God can snuff their life out that quick. You all see the Buffalo Bills play? Now, I'm not saying God snuffed his life out. I'm simply giving you an illustration of the fragility of life. Who would have ever dreamed that Lamar Hamilton, a 24-year-old athlete in his prime, would have tackled someone, stood to his feet, Caleb and I were watching the game, and collapsed like that with a heart attack and would have died had someone not given him CPR. 24 years old in the prime of his life. Who would have thought life would be that frail? You'd think for sure that man would have years and years with the good health he was in, the diet and the exercise and all that. Let me tell you something, folks. Take that same principle and now imagine God being mad at an enemy or wanting to get even. Do you not think God's strong enough to take care of your enemies? He was teaching Isaac a lesson. I told your father I would bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You're going to have to learn to trust me. By the way, when you get on over into the, the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you're going to come to a guy, and his name was Baal of Peor. Baal was hired to go up and curse the nation of Israel, to put a curse on them. And every time Baal, uh, Baal of Peor stood up to go, curse, every time he did that, guess what came out of his mouth? May God bless you, a star will rise out of Jacob. And the man who hired him said, you idiot, I paid you to curse them. He said, every time I try to do it, I end up blessing them. If you miss this story, if you miss this point, you've missed the whole story. God told Abram, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who... God overruled that man. And God used a pagan witchcraft diviner who would pull out entrails of animals and try to tell the future... 
God overpowered that man and put his word in his mouth and made him bless Israel. By the way, that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God refers to himself and when Jesus referred to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is who he's talking about. This story is not about Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It's about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the same God who Brian said very accurately this morning, who does not change, who's still with his people. But here's this story, and here's Jacob the manipulator and the schemer, and his mother does this. He's going to be sent to the school of Laban to get a Ph.D. in life. And by the way, brother, he's going to get it. You know, because you know the story, Jacob fools his father, the older for the younger. Well, when he goes to Laban, Laban's going to fool Jacob, the older for the younger. More to come. It's interesting when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, isn't it? I have not come to bring peace into the world, but a sword. I'm going to preach a sermon on that whole message. But here is problems in the family that God allowed to bring forth his purpose. Now, can you imagine Rebecca's surprise when she learned that the two children would struggle with each other and her womb all their lives. Each child would produce a nation. These two nations, Edom and Israel, would compete. The younger would not master or would master the older. And just as God had chosen Isaac, the secondborn, and not Ishmael, <clears throat> the firstborn, so he chose Jacob, the secondborn, and not Esau, the firstborn. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the younger son should rule the elder. Contrary to human tradition and logic, but the sovereign God made the choice. <clears throat> you should read Romans 9, 10, 11, and 12. God never makes a mistake. He knew exactly what he was doing. The order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. Griffith Thomas wrote. Isaac, the quiet man, fulfilled his dreams, and Esau, the courageous man, and apparently ignored the fact that his older son was also a worldly man. Did Isaac know that Esau had forfeited his birthright? The record doesn't tell us. But he did know that God had chosen the younger son over the older, and he chose to fight against God. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> we must also learn to trust the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of his delays. What parents wish <clears throat> would happen overnight in their child's life usually doesn't happen in their own lifetime. Can I tell you this? My father died at an early age. Dad never got to hear me preach, did he, Karen? That's how young he died. However, after my father's death, things happened in my life. <clears throat> Do you know I, I totally changed? My dad's death was a pivotal changing point in my life. He never saw that. But God, God used his death and circumstances surrounding it to completely transform me. And a lot of things that my dad had poured in my life and said, you know, sometimes those things don't hit until they're gone. And sometimes we don't pay attention and appreciate people for what they say and what they're trying to do until we're gone. I tell Karen all the time, my sweet grandmother used to make me lunch every day from high school. This is back in the day... Back in, oh, this is a long time ago, as somebody said, back when y'all had telephones in the house in the 90s. 
1990, my grandmother would make two hot dogs every day for lunch. I'd drive from school with my shotgun in the back window over to her house, eat two hot dogs, usually take a friend, and she just loved to see me come. I didn't know that my grandmother appreciated that until later in my life after she had passed. My mom said she lived for you to come over there for lunch and spend 30 minutes of your day with her. Why, well, I was a dumb kid. I didn't know I should have been hugging on my grandma and loving all over her and telling her how much I loved her. I was, I was thick. But God can transform. God has all of eternity to change us. Sometimes He does it now, sometimes He makes us wait. Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for Isaac to be born. Jacob had to labor 14 to obtain his two wives. And Joseph had to wait for over 20 years before his brothers ever came and said, We're sorry. Our times are in God's hands and His timing is never wrong. Now I want to leave you with something this morning. This was a story that an elementary school teacher did with her students. And this is what she said. I want you to write a paper saying, I wish I were. Here's the story. A teacher started checking homework done by her students. Her husband is strolling around with a smartphone playing his favorite game. When reading the last homework notes, his wife started crying with silent tears. What's wrong, honey? Yesterday, I gave homework to my students to write on the topic, I wish I were. Okay, why are you crying? The wife said, while checking the last notes, it made me cry. What's written in the notes that made you cry, the husband said. Just listen. My wish is to become a smartphone. My parents love their smartphone very much. They care about their smartphone so much that sometimes they forget to care for me. When my father comes from the office tired, he has time for his smartphone, but not for me. They attend the phone, but not to me. When they're doing important things, important work, and the smartphone rings, with just one single ring, they drop everything they have and answer it but not me, even if I'm crying. Do you know they can play games on their smartphone, but not with me? When they're talking to someone on their smartphone, they never listen to me, even if I'm telling them something very important. So my wish in life is that I could become a smartphone. After listening to the note, the husband got a little emotional himself and said, Who wrote that, honey? The mom said, our son. Can I challenge you in our day? Beware of distractions. They will steal your time. They'll steal your life. And they'll steal your influence from your kids. And by the way, we're all challenged with this and we're all tempted. There has to be a great balance, doesn't there? Now, what do I want you to take away from today? Well, obviously, I want you to take those four principles away. But I drew this pretty little chart and here's kind of how it goes. 
I want you to start thinking about during this series a God-centered life. I open with a psychology article, secular psychology. I want to end with a Christian worldview. And this is how it's kind of integrated. We take the truths that we learn from God's Word as the center of our life about Him, about us, and about what He says pleases Him. And that is used to inform us on my thought life and my actions, on my marriage and in my relationships, in life's problems, its challenges, and all of its difficulties, and also my job, my purpose in life, etc. So this is the centerpiece of our life. We have to know it and know what God wants us to do with it and about it. And part of these stories is to teach us, are you with me? is to teach us that in spite of circumstances and difficulties in life and things that we think could never work, the sovereign, almighty God of heaven, who manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the second man of the Godhead who came to this earth to die for us, who sent his Holy Spirit, who is also a member of the Godhead, to live inside of us and to help us navigate life and use wisdom is able to take his truth in his word and help us to live wisely. And when we do the very best that we can do, we can trust God with our children, our job, our marriage, everything about our life. We can trust God to take all of these things and work them in a direction that he wants them to go and still worship him. So if you leave here this morning with children who are in disarray, a marriage that's fallen apart, a, a job or an employer that's impossible, hang in there. Because God's going to take every bit of that and he's going to use it. You be patient. And you learn the greatness of principle number three. We have to trust God's sovereignty and his delays. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for these wonderful truths and these stories that tell us so much about you being involved in the lives of your people. We know you're still involved in our life today. Thank you for letting us see how you can even step into a dysfunctional family. And by your grace and by your sovereignty, use that in our lives in a way that you honor yourself. And that's why we're here, is to honor you this morning and to worship you because you're truly worthy of our worship. We thank you for it, and we bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.